Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this week's show on Friday, March 18th, 2022, which is the day after St. Patrick's Day. Did you and Katie do anything? No, Katie's out of town, right? No, Katie was here, but we we did not do anything. I was... As we'll talk about in a minute, Jim, I was mm-hmm. knee deep in mm-hmm. calling people and trying to get a story out the door. Okay. Okay. Well, I was kind of hoping you'd go up to the street to my home away from home, Bob's Big Boy in Toluca Lake. I did see another Bob's Big Boy out in Norco, mm-hmm. uh, California. They have what they call the Big Irish, which seems to be a burger with thinly sliced corned beef and cabbage on top of it. So if I have to clog my arteries, I will go with the real one. I'll go with the big boy. The classic. Yeah. The next time I'm in town, we'll go to the media district. And I mean, I need some for Micah. It's been so long since I've been to Bob's. We'll sit at the Beatles table. How about that? Even better. Yeah. Okay. Now, you were just referencing, again, crazy week, lots of work, but it all led to an amazing piece, which kind of keys off of what we were talking about last week about the whole Bob Chapek don't say gay thing. But you collaborated on a story with Sharon Wax herself on this? Yes. You know, there's a double-edged sword, Jim, of my John Carter piece, which is now now people understand that I can actually write and I'm not Mm -hmm. sort of a... uh, you know, charity case. Uh, mm-hmm. So <laughs> so she said, you seem okay. to know a lot about this. What do you think about this? And so here we go. I uh, wrote a giant story about Imagineers wanting to kind of leverage mm-hmm. the backlash to get Chapek to abandon his plans to force everyone to go to Lake Nona. And by everyone, I mean the handful of Imagineers that are still left at the company. Yeah, that to me, I think, is the huge news. Do you want to share the number? I know. I think I didn't put the number in. I think yeah. I was pretty comfortable saying that there mm. are less than 100 Imagineers <sighs> left. And I think there were probably 1,800 before the pandemic. So, oh, my God. Yeah. And and that's not just in California, right? Well, yeah, no, that is the Glendale number. I mean, I, I think you can probably, mm-hmm. I mean, let's see, we got Anaheim, mm-hmm. Shanghai, Hong Kong, Paris, Japan, yep. and Germany, um, mm-hmm. because they're finishing the boat out there. But mm-hmm. it, it's not a lot of people, Jim, is what I'm trying to say. It's no, like, no. we're down to the... Uh, to the crumbs, but you know, like you, we were talking the other day and you said, you know, mm-hmm. the Imagineering story of the documentary was supposed to be the kind of first opening chapter and it ended up being the whole story of Imagineering. Leslie did such a great job with it. And it's like, it was supposed to be the celebration of this ongoing thing. And right now it's appearing that it's a fond look back. Yes. Yes. But also a story that's ongoing. Yes. This has been up for the better part of the day now. Any reaction from the, the Well, I will the say that uh, without giving anybody away that mm. I, I woke up to a text from somebody at WDI that said you who mm. I didn't talk to for the piece, but said yeah. you got everything right. So that is always, that's always validating, you know. But, you know, that sort of validation, like, oh, the ship is, in fact, going down. Lovely. Yeah. (laughs) Well, they just said that's kind of the vibe. You know, there's just Mm -hmm. that kind of malaise. There Mm -hmm. is, uh, it's just, 
I was happy that I was that I got the story right, and I was sad that I got the story right because I don't want Imagineering to be in that position. We had this story last week about Pixar, how they, they'd send the work-in-progress movies down to Burbank, and the exec, Disney executives would send them back with story notes and ask that the scenes with any same-sex affection be pared down to, I, I think the phrase they used was crumbs. Yes. Pixar put out that letter for much the same reason. It was looking to leverage the situation. Which brings us now to the Lightyear story. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, well, I mean, if somebody had told me that the first gay kiss in a Pixar feature would be in Lightyear, I would have never thought that. I mean, hello, we just got through with Luca, which is about the two queerest little sea creatures that ever lived. So, you know, it's it's pretty interesting. But the whole story is that it was, you know, it was out as late as last week. And then this week they put it back in. So, yeah, one of the characters na- named uh, Hawthorne. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is voiced by Uba Udube, who has mm-hmm. whose name I'm going to screw up, from Orange is the New Black. Mm-hmm. Her character has a partner, and it just it was very interesting that it came after some Blue Sky-related news. There we go. I'm so glad you talked about that, because Disney acquires 20th Century Fox back in 2019, pays all of that money, and at that point, they have two films in production, right? We've got Spies in Disguise, which Disney does release through 20th Century in December of 2019. And then there's Nimona, based on the N.D. Stevenson graphic novel. And we got the news February of last year that Disney was going to shutter Blue Sky Studios. And not only that, they had this almost completed animated feature three quarters of the way done months away from being completed yeah they had like 20 20 minutes more to sort of animate yeah but disney walked away from it here they have disney plus this grand canyon that they have to throw new pieces of content into yeah every week to keep subscribers and the fact that they walked away from a nearly completed animated feature just didn't make sense from any business point of view to literally walk away from the tens of millions of dollars that had already been spent on the film. But now this story, it was a variety that broke the No, it was the insider. It was the insider. Yeah. And I guess they have three blue sky studios folks who came forward and basically said that they were sending Nimona to Disney and Disney had an issue with this very same thing. There was a same sex kiss in the film mm-hmm. and Disney wanted to be removed and the folks at blue sky actually, cause they wanted to keep the studio open. They wanted, uh, they did pull it out, but Disney still shut down the film. And do, do you honestly think that's really why they pulled the plug on the Nimona? Or no, it's I, don't, be, I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, it's gotta be a factor, but it was the tax write off that was very, very tempting. Right. Well, I mean, that tax write-off has gotten them into trouble, though. Um, That's right. That's yeah, right. Remember that? Yeah, they, 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 they took a little too much, you know, or claimed a little too much. Right. Yes. Yeah. They shut down the studio on February 9th. But the studio, I mean, it takes a while to actually turn off a studio. So they had people in the building at Blue Sky. Disney reached out to specific folks. It's like, hey, we have this other thing we'd like you to do before you close, which brings us to the the Ice Age Scrap Tail shorts. Yeah, which are, I think, didn't you tell me that those are the last Blue Sky pieces of animation ever? 
very last pieces. Yeah. Six of these shorts are going to debut on Disney Plus on April 13th. And what's kind of ironic, it will be a year and eight days from the day the studio officially closed when they debut on Disney Plus. So do you think it's coincidental, the timing, that that same-sex story, the, the Blue Sky story breaks, and then we get this announcement a day later that Pixar, the same-sex kiss is going back into light year? I mean... Jim, you and I both know that there's nothing coincidental about the way that the Walt Disney Company delivers its news. Mm. I also think it is probably a distraction, perhaps, from my story as well, from talking about Imagineering and all that. It's like, hey, no, we're progressive. There's a kiss in light year. Look at this. Look over here, Jim. And and remember, this this is the same week we had all of those stage walkouts by the LGBTQ employees at Disney. Yeah, there's there's more next week, too. So (sighs) keep an eye on that. I think studio is Monday. So if you're Bob Chapek now, you're not just tired of the news, the constant drop out. You're tired of being in the news. Yes. And when does this go away? And if what you're saying is true, there are more walkouts next week. This is not going away. No. So. They might want to say, mm-hmm. see you later, Bob Chapek. Don't let the door hit you where the good Lord split you. You know what I mean? That's <laughs> That might be the move. Well, well let's see what happens. You know, yes. it, it, it's a long way to December. Yes, it is. Anyway, uh, speaking of the, the news, uh, the news portion of this week's fine tuning is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. For a worry-free travel experience, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. So we were just talking about the Ice Age shirts, those scrat tails that will be debuting on uh, Disney Plus on April 6th. But you you must have seen the trailer that Disney Plus released for Sketchbook. Yes. Produced by our friend Amy Astley. There we go. Yeah. In the press material, Sketchbook is described as an intimate instructional documentary series. So the gimmick is the viewers get to learn how to draw Six Disney characters. Do you know which six? Or yeah, I do. Oh, okay, uh, Mirabelle from Encanto, Olaf from mm-hmm. Frozen, mm-hmm. Uh, the genie from Aladdin, Simba mm-hmm. from Lion King, Captain Hook from Peter Pan, and I thought it was interesting Cusco from The Emperor's New Groove. Yeah, who we, who we love, but it's not well, a it, not a marquee character. Let's say they probably just threw that in there for you and I. But yes, the other thing I think they did that's great about this for for animation nerds like you and I is these episodes of Sketchbook are built around an, a single artist at Walt Disney Animation Studios. I mean, we're talking folks like Eric Goldberg and Mark Henn. And as they're showing us how to draw an on-model version of these Disney characters, Mark and Eric and, and the other four artists, talk about their own history of the company, their own personal journey as an artist. Amy's team, when they put together the PR for this, they talk about how surprisingly emotional a lot of these stories are. Yeah, I mean, I've done videos with a lot of these people when I was at Disney and, you know, sat next to Eric's desk and Mm -hmm. peppered him with questions. Some might say Mm -hmm. assaulted him with questions. (laughs) Um, And, you know, it's just a lot of fun. And I love that they also they have newer animators who are drawing older characters. So Mark and Eric are actually drawing characters that they drew in the movies. But like Jin Kim is doing... Captain Hook because he loves Captain Hook and he is an amazing artist. And if you, if anybody out there has seen Belle, he designed the, you know, the main character in Belle. So 
I think that's going to be fascinating too. I can't wait to hear like how some of these characters touch these artists mm-hmm. in a specific way. And it's giving me flashbacks to going to Florida, Jim, and walk, walking <laughs> through the bubble. But I know we'll have something about that a little later on. Yes, yes, we will. Yes, we will. We'll get to that in a moment. But given that Encanto is still this white hot pop phenomena, I'm not really surprised that they found a way to shoehorn, let's figure out how to, to draw Mirabelle. But speaking of it being a phenomenon, again, I, I'm pretty sure this is the rap that, that shared this news about how many times have the households <laughs> that, you know, uh, the, all five the households. Five times that, per household on average. Five times? Which, mm-hmm. if your daughter was in the house, she would probably be watching it five times. Not at her current age, but if she was a child and in yes, the house. no, no, I get that, I get yeah. that. So the the way the math works is that translates to Encanto has now been viewed over 180 million times since this thing debuted on Disney Plus in late December. So obviously, that's the sort of cow you want to continue to milk. So just today, the sing-along version of Encanto debuted on Disney+. Plus. Yes. Uh, we'll see whether or not that owl from the videotapes uh, is introducing the sing-along <laughs> this time. But <laughs> Okay. You know what I'm go. talking about? <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. That wasn't toot plunk whistle boom, right? It no, was it wasn't toot plunk whistle boom. Uh, I'm going to look at it. I'm going to see where this owl came from. But Okay. But, but, yeah, if you know, you know. As you the know. kids say, <laughs> Professor Owl. Go. He Professor was from owl. Melody Wh- Toot Whistle Plunk. There we go. Yes. Okay. All right. Yes. So, but also, while Disney was announcing that this sing-along version of Encanto was going to debut on, on March 18th, we also got news that there are four other sing-alongs being prepped, right? Yes. Before, I think they said throughout the year, we're going to get Frozen, Mm -hmm. Frozen 2, Beauty and the Beast, and then for Mm -hmm. some reason, the Beauty and the Beast from 2017. Somebody's got to sing that weird song that the Beast sings. Yeah, the song about uh, (laughs) the plague or whatever, Black Death. Yeah. There we go. Everybody's favorite. Yeah. (laughs) But remember, sometimes it is a song like that. That becomes a hit, and which, again, brings us to, we don't talk about Bruno, which just this week, after five weeks, is number one on Billboard's Hot 100. It slipped to number two. It's now behind Heat Wave, which is a song by Glass Animals. Okay. But what do you make of this announcement from the Academy that we don't talk about Bruno is going to be performed live on stage? As part of this year's Oscar broadcast. This is a little, this is interesting because mm-hmm. not to, not to shamelessly plug myself again, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. when I talked to Lynn manuel a few weeks ago, he talked about how excited he was about Dos Orguitas being performed mm-hmm. and how part of the reason they chose it was because it was the emotional heart of the movie. And he said, you know, mm-hmm. it would have been very tempting to do mm-hmm. You're Welcome and have The Rock come out when they were choosing which song to Submit yeah. for Moana. So mm-hmm. this is a very have your cake and eat it too moment. And it's also very controversial already in animation circles. I and was wondering about that. Yes. Please explain why. Well, I think it was Phil Lord, who is mm-hmm. the producer of Mitchell's versus Machines and a, and a friend of mine. But he, he mm-hmm. tweeted out that voting just started, I think, yesterday. Mm-hmm. And it really sways things in a direction. If you're already kind of promoting mm-hmm. this song as like the winner and giving the 
the movie more attention as well. So I think that he might be overreacting maybe a little bit, but I totally understand where he's coming from as well. I mean, this really puts it as the movie to beat, which I don't know if that's fair exactly, but... This is already a very controversial Academy Awards here. What with those eight categories being pulled out of the live broadcast that are going to be filmed beforehand. And, you know, and, and remember, one of them is Best Animated Short. So now those eight categories that were pared down to little tidbits of film that will maybe be inserted into the show. Right. Now these eight categories also have to compete with a second song from Encanto. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I have to assume the plan is that all of five of the songs that have been nominated including Dos Orguitos, are going to be performed. So we're now going to have six musical numbers in the show? Or they just don't do Dos Orguitos. Oh. Listen, Jim, if they can cut best sound effects editing, they can cut Dos Orguitos. Jeez. Yeah. This wasn't enough of a train wreck going in. Let's make it more complicated. Yeah. Let's make it more controversial. Yeah, you're right. This is a very contentious awards show, and um, obviously we will be covering it in a couple of weeks but well speaking of controversies when drew and i get back from this break we're going to talk about what's going on on rotten tomatoes when it comes to that that audience score ranking for turning red so we're just talking about disney's encanto how it debuted in disney plus back in december of last year and has been viewed on average five times in every household that subscribes to the mouse streaming service which sounds impressive in and of itself over 180 million views but did you see that Turning Red is off to a pretty amazing start It as well? They're not sharing numbers at this point. But what Disney revealed yesterday, there was this Domi She film has broken that subscription streaming service's global viewership opening record. Supposedly, that's based on the total number of hours that a film is viewed during the first three days that it's available for viewing. I love these. I love these parameters, Jim. It's like <laughs> the total number of people watching that were hopping on one foot during the vernal equinox while whistling, you know, Beyonce's. Uh, you know, it's like, whoa, what are these men? Well, it, 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 it reminds me of that joke from the jerk. You can have any prize here that's between uh, on this shelf between the pencils and the, you know, yeah, yes, you're right. It's, it's a very weird subset, but again, Disney, Disney is bragging about it and, and I get why? I mean, Turning Red has a 95% freshness rating, which you being a member of the, you know, the Critics' Choice Association, you know, you know, that means a lot of people really got behind this movie. On the other hand, can we talk about the audience score? If we must. As recently as this weekend, it was down at 65. It, it's since recovered to 72, but... A lot of folks, just based on the trailers they saw out ahead of Turning Red's March 11th debut, they were folks were upset that the hero of this film was a 13-year-old girl, and and not just a girl, but a Chinese girl who's going through puberty while her family maintained this temple in Toronto. And I mean, there were some folks who, who based strictly on the trailer, were like, oh, I don't like Pixar doing the anime style. And there was kind of a racist undercurrent. Listen, Jim, if it's one thing we've we know about America is that it, the only thing it's more than racist is mm-hmm. sexist. So I think both of these things played 
their part. I mean, it's like looking at at next door, which mm-hmm. you would understand, Jim, if you had a next door neighbor instead of the <laughs> large grizzly bear that occasionally wanders into your yard. But it's an incredibly racist, <laughs> sexist kind of platform mm-hmm. for people. So it's just not great. But there was a very weird outspoken element of the viewers that said that it was inappropriate, which I thought was... That's what I found intriguing. It's not the people who talk this way off of the trailer. It's the response after the film came out. And that that phrase, inappropriate. Yeah. I think actually some of the very best moments in Turning Red are the cringy ones. Nancy was just talking about this with our, our friend Angela about, have you seen Turning Red yet? And it's like, no. And it's, oh, well, you have to see this because there's the scenes where the mom, you know, it's like, honey, you forgot your pads. And it's like, boy, do I really identify with that? My mom really embarrassed me. Right. Somebody was mentioning that they were like a 30, 35-year-old woman. And this is the third time in the hundreds of movies that they've seen that they've actually seen Somebody talk about having your period or a sanitary pad or that yeah. sort of thing. Well, yeah, people were bringing up Only Yesterday a lot, mm-hmm. which is a great kind of unsung gem in the Studio Ghibli library, mm-hmm. which talks about menstruation as well. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. people were saying, I never thought I'd see a Western American movie actually deal with mm-hmm. this kind of stuff, which is both very telling and very sad. Yeah. As the father of a daughter... I love that this film normalizes this. For sure. Because it's normal. And at the same time, though, that's another one of the things where it's just sort of like, I don't want to live in this planet anymore. The, the, the people who were talking about, did you see that, you know, they have people in this film who, who are wearing ethnic headgear. And I, I, I worry that they're normalizing this. And it's like, you're worried that they're showing you something in the real world? Yeah. God forbid. I don't know if you've seen the couple of stories that are out there about people who are celebrating the fact that, hey, there are kids in this film who are wearing diabetic pumps and that sort of thing. And yes. how great it is for the, the kids who are in school who get teased by friends about wearing that sort of gear. And it's like, no, it's a normal thing. Look, it's in, in turning red. And it's like, why is that good? But oh, no, God, ethnic headgear. We don't want to see that. Also, Jim, yep. this movie is promoting disobedience. But seriously, any parent out there on the planet that has had a preteen or a teenager, oh my God, kids disobey. Oh my God, kids lie to you. Oh my God, kids try to sneak out of the house. That's never happened in the history of man. You know, how dare Disney show this? I think Turning Red is, if not top 10 Pixar, top five. And largely one of its strongest virtues are the cringy moments, or, or, yeah. or I think as you described it in your early, early review, that this is the horniest Pixar film. For you sure. Know? <laughs> in a really, in an innocent way, but in a way yeah. that acknowledges that teenage girls have sexual impulses. God forbid. Yeah. Again, Jim, I know we're getting into taboo territory here, but here we go. it's just crazy to me. And yeah. I agree with you, Jim. I think it is. I'm going to quote mm. Ford Town right now, Jim, and say, mm. let me clear the air. It's a masterpiece. <laughs> Right? So that is how I feel about Turning Red. But you actually got some merch, though, right? We cracked. So we sprang for the the May Red Panda plush 
That's the re- it's really big, right? It's huge. It's mothersly big. Okay. And what was so funny is that I, you know, we had literally gotten it here at the house a, a day before, and I got a note from my sister, who was like, "Are you going down to Disney anytime soon? Because if you're there, can you buy me, you know, one of the red pandas from from Turning Red?" And I, I, I literally pulled out the phone and put the thing on, you know, our kitchen counter for scale, and it's like, "Really? You want something this big?" And when she said yes. I turned around and ordered a second one from Shop Disney because there was no way I was going to carry something this large through the airport. Well, speaking of, there's no stuff for men. Even all the t-shirts at Box Lunch and Hot Topic are all female cut. Mm-hmm. So as a man with a very big beard, I want my Red Panda t-shirt. You know what I mean, Jim? So come on, Shop Disney. Let's go. Chop, chop. We got to get... Some there of this we go. product there out here because back in the day when Little Mermaid was about to debut in, in 89 and uh, Beauty and the Beast was coming into the parks in 91, likewise Aladdin in 92. Do you remember that pre parade float? Yep. Where the, the characters for the movie that was coming out in like two months would be, you know, on there and waving to the crowd and they'd yep. be playing the one song and, you know, and it was sort of like that was from the Eisner era. You introduce the characters in the park. You get them excited, the folks who are there, and two months later, they buy their tickets, they go to see the movie. And it's like, I feel like if ever there's a Pixar character that should be in the park, May as the Red Panda would be great. But, okay, downside Wait, I have two thoughts about this, Jim. Uh, Okay. One, we need to have somebody as May in the cardboard cutout version. (laughs) Okay, number one. Number two... Do you remember that picture from, I believe Brooks wrote it. It was a story Mm. about next generation characters in the park. And it had somebody in a giant, it looked like a Hulk costume. Yeah. But what I am saying, Jim, what I am hypothesizing is Mm. couldn't that be a giant red panda too? I mean, you have nailed the real problem. I mean, in order for this to be authentic, first of all, you'd have to get those guys, the, the guys who dress in the goofy costume. Yeah. The, the blue kid, you know, because that that literally supposedly, I, I want to say six five. I mean, I remember. Oh, really? I, well, I had a friend, uh, in fact, Thomas, hello, who so wanted to play goofy in the parks and kept going to audition for the role and was always like a quarter of an inch too short that the very next time they went, you know, they did the auditions, Thomas you know, he went home and put on like five pairs of athletic socks right on top of one another and then went in for the audition there and, and was able to cheat the height enough that, okay, you had a growth spurt in your 30s. Right. right. You can that, now that's play very um, <laughs> Bart auditioning for radioactive man. Oh, there right. we go. So, yeah, it's got to be. A tall person, unless, of course, they do that weird suit that was a combination of stilts and hand extensions yep. where they, they could actually move the fingers, couldn't they? Yeah, and I bet you that if they put some kind of thing on your face that you could control the facial articulation, too. Hmm. I'm just saying, Jim. I'm okay. just saying. I'm going to put that right. out there. Okay. All right. To the five employees who are left in, in Imagineering. Yes. If yes, you are would... a janitor and happen upon <laughs> this... While cleaning out the office, please tell us if there's red fur stapled to it. Speaking of fur, we also got a uh, trailer for Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. This is the follow-up to 
Puss in Boots, the, the DreamWorks film from 11 years ago? Correct. Isn't this the one that, that was it Guillermo that worked on? on yeah, he on, worked on the original. He, he, Guillermo said that there was a script for the second one in 2014 or something. Wow. And, you know, most recently, right after Spider-Man mm. Into the Spider-Verse came out, that Bob mm. Perchietti, who was one of the three filmmakers on that movie, mm. was scheduled to direct Puss in Boots. Interesting. Well, there was a version before Universal took over. So that was the that was the 2014 version. Okay, so Universal acquires them outright in 2015. All those go. projects go away or go into hibernation, including mm -hmm. uh, the Crude sequel, which we'll talk about in a second. But mm -hmm. so when Puss in Boots came out of hibernation, that's when Bob got attached, and then a couple of years later, Joel Crawford, who directed Crude's two, which I thought was very fun, yeah, uh, yeah is you know. doing this one. But did you see who the executive producer of this one is, Jim? No. Chris Melodandri. So this is Whoa, the this is the first from Illumination. Yes, this is the first crossover kind of wow. thing. But okay. I thought the animation looked really cool. They animated on twos a lot. It looks like um, it's a little strange to be doing what look. I mean, they're bringing back Kitty Softpaws. Yep. Not only that, Antonio Banderas and Selma Hayek are coming back to voice these characters. But again, it's. The eleven year later sequel. Oh boy, I do want this to work. I really do. Yeah. In much the same way, I want the Kung Fu Panda, the Dragon Knight thing that got announced uh, this week for Netflix. Yeah. And we've had the three theatrical films. We've had a couple of animated series, but this is different. This is well. First of all, we get Jack Black back. Yeah. I mean, as recently as the opening of the whatever that Kung Fu Panda ride is called at Universal mm -hmm. Studios Hollywood, he was not yep. doing it. I mean, this is the first time he's done it since Kung Fu Panda 3. Yeah. So, yep. and like you're saying, there have been two complete animated series. This is the third. Mm -hmm. There's been that ride. There's been all sorts of miscellaneous that he hasn't been a part of. So. so many people now are looking to what's going on in the subscription streaming space. And thinking, okay, they're doing good stuff over there. I want to be part of that. It's weird it's not on Peacock, though. It is weird that it's not on Peacock. But you, you have to wonder, is this one of these residual rights deals yeah. that eventually that'll run clear? But by the way, I'm on like my fifth run of the Richard Linkletter Apollo 10 and a half, a space age childhood. And it's so hard to describe to folks, because it does such a wonderful job of delineating childhood in Houston in the 60s. Yes. But the, there's also this other parallel, I think it's a fantasy story, but I, I don't know. I mean, but it looks so great. Yeah. You're going to hate me, Jim, but I have this in, I have this on my Netflix right now, so I'm going to watch it oh. tonight, probably. Okay, well, yeah. I, I want to hear all about it. But again, that's coming out on Netflix April 1st, folks. So be sure and check that out. And and while we're talking about DreamWorks, it, it's yeah. important to stress that they're not just doing this legacy stuff. I'm fascinated by Chris Maliandri kind of sort of wading in and doing a Puss in Boots thing. And we've been hearing about that Shrek reboot, too. I will say this about Shrek. Mm -hmm. It's not a reboot. That's all oh. I'll say. That's all I'll say. It's not a reboot. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. That's a news. All right. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of news, though, 
There's a brand new kid series coming from DreamWorks Animation, and it's by Kate Beaton. Yes. Did you ever get to see her webcomic, Hark of Agrant? Yes. It was a webcomic series that riffed on history and literature, and it was stupid jokes for smart people or, or smart jokes for stupid people. I have no idea how to describe it, but it was wonderful. Well, it's like, where did this show come from? Like y- yeah. you and I don't know about it, and it's a DreamWorks thing. It's Kate Beaton. It's like where what? T- <laughs> well, Apple but- TV Plus is like HBO <sighs> quality programming and yeah. like I- Mattress King level marketing. <laughs> <laughs> that is what I will say. No, no. I mean, this this keeps happening over and over again. You're right. Right? It's just sort of like, we're going to do something really good. So, okay. Don't tell anybody about right. it. <laughs> exactly. The amount of people I've had to explain what uh, For All Mankind is and how it mm. is maybe the best show on television. And they just have no clue that it has been mm. on for two seasons Anyway, sorry, Jim, I'm getting off topic, but you aren't uh, seriously not wrong. And, and but again, I, I was a huge Kate Beaton fan, wait, been waiting for her to come back from her sort of creative hiatus. And this is based on her New York Times bestselling book, picture book, The Princess and the Pony. But yeah, uh, Pinecone and Pony, eight episodes debuts on, on Apple Plus and, and, and just within weeks, April 8th. And then on that same day, we get season two of Green Eggs and Ham, which debuts on Netflix. And which I have heard is one of the most expensive animated shows ever. If you look at it. I think it's real animation, too. I mean, I might be wrong about that, but it, I think it might be actual, like, cell animation. It's absolutely beautiful. And based on how well this has been received, Dr. Seuss Enterprise uh, just announced this week that they're doing five new animated series for Netflix which will also be based on beloved Seuss books. So we've got Horton Hears a Who, The Sneetches, One Fish, Blue Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish, Wacky Wednesday, and Thedwick the Big-Hearted Moose, who just walked through the yard earlier today. Oh, I love that moose. I'm glad he's he's still out there in New Hampshire. He's, he's getting work. All right, now speaking of books, and Drew teased this uh, early, early in the show, so... This book is not going to be published till December 27th of this year, but I wanted to make sure that everybody had this on their radar. The thing you want to buy this year, folks, is the Disney Animation Renaissance Behind the Glass at the Florida Studio. This is by uh, the late Mary Lesher. We lost Mary in 2019, and Mary worked at Walt Disney Animation Studios Florida. She knew everybody there, and she spent years interviewing folks after the studio closed to get the definitive story of the Florida studio. But again, she died before finishing the book, and her partner, John, has now completed the book. Not only that, he's persuaded the University of Illinois Press to publish this thing. Hardcover is $110, but the paperback, very affordable, $29.95. The Florida studio fascinates Drew and I. I mean, how how many shows have we talked about looking in through the fishbowl at what was being worked on and the the groundbreaking films that were made there, whether it was Milan or Lilo and Stitch or the the great stories of how that studio really struggled to get its feet under it and the whole kill the beast scene that they they had to reanimate because they had the wrong model Model sheets. sheets. Yeah. 
But I cannot stress enough how much I am looking forward to this book. It's sort of been lost to time. And I, I really appreciate Mary, appreciated Mary, because she did like a exhibit, I believe, at the Walt Disney Family Museum called the Florida Studio Disney Art and Artifact. You know, you she's, been, she's been keeping this story alive. And yeah. as someone who came of age around the time that the studio had just opened, it was an incredibly profound effect walking through there and mm-hmm. i think somebody somebody recently shared on twitter the mm-hmm. mickey and me is that that little short with eisner oh where, yeah where he has the eisner watch and they go yeah. into the screening room and it's just yeah. i mean that studio is so amazing and if you know where to look online you can find all sorts of weird stuff out but they had a beautiful building that second building the kind of taller building back there mm-hmm. They, it's Absolutely still beautiful. there. It's really? Still, you know, in fact, they did a lot of the work on Lion King and all of the early second golden age of Disney films in trailers. I mean, you know, there were like 30 people who worked in the fishbowl. But the large amount of the staff, when they really decided, okay, you are going to be supporting our films, they put all these temporary trailers out back. But eventually they decided, no, these people have delivered hit films. They deserve their own studio. And so for the first time in Disney history, they did this very unusual thing. The architects actually sat down with the animators and talked with them about, what do you need? How do you want your room set up? The conference rooms where they would pitch the the films. You know, for the first time ever, it's like, well, we need double wide doors because we're constantly carrying these giant storyboards in and out of these spaces. And it would be so much easier if there were two doors open and natural light and and all of this. Custom animation desks, which I think for the first time since maybe Kim Weber, I've heard they were like $7,500 per Oh, easy, easy. And that building is beautiful. I don't know who designed it, but it's got that same kind of postmodern 90s vibe. It's gorgeous. And it's It's so what are they using it for now? It's marketing. You let all the artists go, but then you bring all the people into the building who then promote. We're Disney. We sell art. We're back to the Leslie Iwerks thing. You create something. And then it's like, uh, why would we want to use this? Yeah. That whole period where we're not going to do hand-drawn animation anymore. You know, so we, uh, let's just shut down the entire Florida studio. I mean, I I get it. I get the whole conceit of shutting down Paris and shutting down Florida and bringing all of the best artists back to Burbank and then training them in CG because that's where the industry was going. But it's just like to this day, the fact that even when Lasseter came back and took over and we, you know, they all, they made those two tries at getting Disney back in hand drawn. But then you look at things like Paper Man, you know, just sort of hinting that, you know, you, they could have done something. They really could have done something. I mean, look at bad guys, look at Mitchell's versus the machines. Yeah. Like, even look at, yeah. at, Turning red. Thank you for plugging bad guys again. Could very, very much looking forward to that. And also very, very much now looking forward to what's going to happen with Light the Fuse because of this week's news coming out of Cannes. Yeah, they're going to, well, they're going to screen Maverick. It won't technically be the premiere because I think the premiere is happening the week before at, at, in San Diego, which oh. I don't know, Jim, if you've ever been to the bar from Top Gun, which is still standing. Is- that what they're going to do? I, I mean, to me, they have to do something with that bar, right? I mean, like, they can't have it in San Diego and not 
have the after party oh, there. Okay. Something. Anyway. Okay. Okay. Uh, they're doing the premiere in San Diego. They're going to do a big screening uh, out mm-hmm. of competition at Cannes. Charles okay. and I were joking that maybe it'll still win the Palm d'Or just because people will like it so much. They'll just kind of force it into competition and give it the Palm mm-hmm. d'Or. Uh, but they're also doing a little career retrospective with Tom earlier in the day where they're going to go through uh, all of his movies. And then right after that will be the screening of Top Gun. And you know what, Jim? I'm just loving that we got Cruz on another international press tour. I mean, nobody <laughs> sells a movie like him. Yeah. And it's just great. I don't think Charles and I will be showing up on the croissant, but... Oh, you know. Oh, okay. We'll I was see. really, you know, I, especially on the heels of these these giant stories you're doing lately. It's like, you know, it's like, come on, come you, on, send me there. It'll it'll be me driving to San Diego in my Nissan. Is more uh, is that's probably more accurate, but yeah. All right, all right. Although with gas, the price that it is in L.A., it might cost the same to get to France or San Diego. Speaking of which, what's going on with with Light Diffuse this week? Uh, this week, I think we're, this is our last week with our cinematographer chat. So we talked to two cinematographers that are working today on Netflix shows and things. So we're finishing that up. I don't know what's going on after that, Jim. I Mm. am a shell of a man right now. And, uh, but Hey, if you want to listen to it, it would really help me out. So yeah. (laughs) When Drew is not being a shell of a man, he's also being one of the most entertaining people on social media. Can you tell folks where where they can can find your? your yeah, uh, you can find me at Drew Taylor, like a tailored shirt, on Instagram mm-hmm. or Twitter. All right. Well, anyway, that's going to do it for this week because frankly, Drew needs to go take a nap. But we will be back next week with a brand new fine tuning. Till then, thanks for listening, folks, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>